0: Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am speaking to Dr. Tom Graham, a counselling psychologist and CBT therapist at Oxford Health Specialist Psychological Intervention Centre. Many of you might have heard of the term CBT, but not a lot of people actually know what it is. I thought it was important for Dr. Graham to come onto the podcast to explain CBT in simple terms and how it can help manage many mental health disorders by changing the way you think and behave. The examples he uses are brilliant, and I think will resonate with a lot of you. Will you just begin by explaining what CBT actually is?
1: Sure, yeah, I'll do my best. So CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, and it's a talking therapy in which we look at the sorts of thoughts that people are having, how that makes them feel, so their emotions and how it affects them physically in their body and their behavior. So how that might inform what they do and how these things all fit together, really, how they all interrelate and inform how people live their lives, what they're thinking about, what they're doing and how they're feeling.
0: And what conditions is CBT used to treat?
1: Well, a whole range of conditions, really. Um, It's recommended as the primary recommended treatment for lots of different anxiety disorders um, and depression, of course, as well as other problems significant mental illness like schizophrenia as well that sort of thing but I mean it's also just kind of helpful for all of us to be thinking sometimes in a kind of non-clinical way about yeah what's going through our mind and how that makes us feel and how that informs what we do and so I, I think CBT is is great both for all of us at times just to be sort of thinking a little bit more about how we tick but also of course as a nice and by that I mean the um National Institute of Clinical Excellence. I hope I've got that right. Yeah, nice. Um, the, the NICE guidelines for treatments for, yeah, anxiety disorders and and depression. So, and of course, when I'm saying anxiety disorders, I mean things like people that might be struggling with panic attacks or panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, of course, and trauma. Um, so, yeah, a whole range of, of different things, really.
0: And can it help with addictions and eating disorders as well? Or does that tend to be... Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Eating disorders and addictions, uh, CBT is is definitely used to help people with those kind of problems as well.
0: So essentially, because I never really dissected actually the the cognitive behavioral dimension of it, if you actually look at the words, it's essentially making us more cognitive, i.e. aware of our behaviors. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it comes out of, I suppose it, it sort of emerged from behavioral therapies, which were focused far more on looking at, the things that people were doing and helping people to sort of modify their behavior, not really sort of paying so much attention to what was going on in people's minds and their sort of thoughts. But it's still, I think, sort of at its heart is still a, a very active and kind of behavioral therapy. So, sure, we'll, we'll definitely be looking at the sort of thoughts that people are having, how that informs what they are doing, but also um, how what people are doing in their behaviors is kind of feeding back into their thoughts and almost like reinforcing beliefs and keeping things going. So, CBT tends to take a kind of maintenance model approach to things and looking at what's keeping a particular problem for somebody going. And and then where can we perhaps start to help somebody with uh, certain patterns of thinking or certain ways of doing things in terms of their behavior that might then uh, start to change things for them and give them a sort of better experience.
0: And how does it exactly work? So if you were treating a patient, say, with OCD, how does the CBT work?
1: Well, a typical course of CBT would start with um, what's called a, a formulation, and that's just kind of a fancy word for drawing out a bit of a diagram, usually a kind of map of the person's problem. So we typically say, okay, let's look at a recent and typical example of the problem in action, and then we'll look. what goes on in sort of slow motion and look at uh, the sort of thoughts that are triggered by a particular situation, the sort of things that go through your mind, how that informs how you're feeling and how that informs what you do, and sort of map out that sort of cycle, because most of us go around thinking and doing things without really reflecting on it too much and actually kind of slowing things down and picking apart what is a process um then gives people a bit more scope to look at what could be kind of changed within that process so we might then help people to reflect on and consider the sort of thoughts that they're having and kind of evaluate their accuracy or if they're helpful uh, and then really sort of set about engaging in the experiential and experimental stuff of experimenting with doing things differently so i suppose the magic happens, I think, in CBT when we get into doing behavioral experiments with people, which is taking a particular prediction or belief and putting it to the test and actually coming up with some sort of experiment where somebody tries to do something, perhaps do something differently to see whether their original belief is true or accurate, or just to kind of gain more information that might then cast a different light on their belief or lead them to kind of question the way that they've been thinking about things and doing things and, and see if there are different ways to do things. And I guess another sort of key part of a lot of CBT is is the kind of exposure-based part of it. So CBT isn't simply exposure for exposure's sake, where we just kind of put people in a room with spiders if they have a spider phobia or something. Obviously, that would be kind of scary. But we look at what are the particular beliefs, what are the particular thoughts at play here that are informing somebody's fears and what they what they do, their behavior, and, and how can we kind of come up with experiments that are likely to involve some exposure to feelings of anxiety and to the things that they're sort of frightened of, so that we can see how the world really works and and put those thoughts, predictions, beliefs to the test.
0: So, for example, if you had someone who suffered from severe social anxiety, say, you might get them to check out their thoughts with another person. So, For example, you go to a party and you see someone and they appear to be quite aloof and abrupt with you. You could then say to them subsequently, Oh, you know, I felt you were quite abrupt with me. Was that something to do with what I had said? Or was that something going on with you? Would that be something that CBT would recommend? Or would it be helpful for the person to base? the therapy on their own internal experience rather than relying on a kind of external validation process as it were?
1: Well that's a really great question and I suppose it's it's a really sort of pertinent one to social anxiety where I suppose people with social anxiety are often very kind of inwardly focused and actually not Brilliant, intact looking around them and taking in the data from the real situation and they base a lot of their interpretation of situations on how they're feeling so I guess we probably all know what it's like to feel anxious and and feel like uh, we're hot and sweaty and maybe a bit red in the face and if you're sort of in the mind of somebody with social anxiety you might be sort of imagining that that's really being broadcast to everybody in the room and they can see just how kind of embarrassed you look and you're bright red and that sort of stuff. So that would be a kind of example of um, somebody seeking the internal data of their experiencing to sort of infer how they're coming across. Um, Again, you've probably sort of, I don't know, given a speech yourself or or watched somebody give a speech and and they've looked really together and, and it's been a brilliant speech and they've come off stage or whatever. And you said, that was great. And they've said, oh my gosh, I was absolutely terrified. I was shaking like a leaf up there. And you think, well, they looked like completely together and you would never have been able to see that. So, you know, our internal world is not being broadcast to everybody around us. And so that's something that uh, we look at with people um, who are struggling with social anxiety, but then, yeah, I guess coming back to your point about would you then sort of check out the accuracy of your predictions with the real data in the world that's out there? Yeah. I suppose you, you might sort of try and find out a little bit more about other people's experiences of anxiety and, and kind of normalizing people's, feelings of anxiety, but um, also, yeah, trying to have almost like recalibrating experiences that help people to shift any biases of interpretation or biases of attention towards kind of negative things so it becomes more kind of balanced and in your example. You know, maybe, maybe if somebody was being kind of aloof or abrupt, maybe they were actually feeling really anxious themselves or maybe there's other stuff going on for them that uh, was nothing to do with with you. But, but I guess if you were that way inclined, you were sort of anxious, you might take information like that that might be a sort of gray area and misinterpret it or have that sort of bias of interpretation to think, oh gosh, you know, it must be me that they're crossed with or did I say something rude or wrong? Mm. So it's really all about kind of experimenting with finding out.
0: And so, for example, someone with OCD, if they had a compulsion around checking a lock, for example how would CBT differ from, say, exposure therapy? And the exposure therapy would basically say, right, start, don't check the lock. Once you've locked the door, you walk away and you don't go back and check it. What would a CBT approach involve in that situation?
1: Well, the CBT approach would still involve kind of the basics of what you've said, but I suppose there might be a little bit more setup to saying, okay, well, What do you think is going to happen if you don't check the lock? First of all, what pops into your mind that tells you, you know, maybe you you didn't lock it properly or that you need to go and check it? And can we sort of rely on those thoughts? Is the problem here that you are somebody that's forgetful and a bit of a kind of walking disaster? Or is it that you're actually somebody that's really sort of overly conscientious and worried and anxious about getting things right and, and not making mistakes how could we devise some experiments that like sort of might put that to the test? So could we get you to lock the door and walk away and then not going back and, and check it? And if we did do that, what would your prediction be? And so the person might say, well, I predict that I, I won't have locked it properly. And therefore, you know, I'll get broken into and, and, and people in my house's stuff will be taken and it'll be my fault. And it will just prove that I'm incompetent or a danger to others or whatever those sort of thoughts, beliefs might be. So I guess we'd want to Put that to the test. And obviously that is exposing somebody to their feared situation and exposing them to those feelings of anxiety. I suppose we might have to do that with somebody, uh, you know, a number of times to help them to feel a degree of confidence that, that actually, yeah, uh, they can lock a door and walk away without needing to go back and check it. And maybe these thoughts are just sort of random intrusive thoughts or doubts that they don't need to pay attention to. But I guess the, the idea here is that we're helping people to, carry out these experiments and find out new information that hopefully they can then sort of generalize across the board. I suppose one of the things about exposure therapy is if we take the kind of simple example of somebody with a spider phobia, you can do some really great exposure-based work with somebody just by sort of gradually exposing them to maybe like a picture of a spider, then a video of a spider, and and then just kind of sitting with that until their feelings of anxiety come down. And then maybe they could see a spider from across the room and get closer to it. And eventually, you know, you can get people to be sort of holding a spider and, and their fear to that spider extinguishes. But I guess then it's whether that then sufficiently generalizes without actually kind of looking at what beliefs might have changed here because you can't do that kind of exposure-based work to every spider in the world like the next spider might be a little, little bit bigger a little bit smaller a little bit hairier a little bit quicker I suppose we're wanting people to kind of learn new things about their perceptions their beliefs and how things work that they can then generalize across the board so if somebody can sort of lock the door and walk away and resist responding to intrusive thoughts to go back and check it and find out that actually, yeah, they locked it fine and nothing happened. Then perhaps we can say, well, what does that tell you maybe about some of these other intrusive thoughts and doubts you might be having about leaving the cooker on or leaving the taps on? Do you think it might be similar there? So you don't have to do sort of just exposure to first the door, then the taps, then the cooker. Hopefully you can kind of generalize the, the principles, the beliefs across different situations.
0: So it sounds like a lot of the preliminary work is done around the cognition and the thought process before moving on to the behaviour itself. So you're sort of almost trying to talk yourself out of the behaviour, convince yourself that the behaviour is irrational or the thought process is irrational. And then you go in to practice it. And because you've got as it were the sort of a manual that you've created yourself in a way that's going to guide you through and enable you to tolerate the anxiety that will inevitably follow doing the exposure task whatever it is Um, if it's seeing a spider holding a spider if it's not going back to check the door if it's going into a social situation and you know learning to tolerate that social anxiety whatever it is but you've then got that manual to help you sit through it and tolerate it
1: Yeah, I suppose as much as we're trying to to get people to do in those first sort of stages is is question their thoughts. So, you know, we're not sort of wanting to get into an argument with people about, you know, your thoughts are irrational and we need to challenge them. I'm probably sort of not a big fan of that word challenge, like thought challenging in CBT. I, I guess I see it as a real process of discovery and experimenting. And if we can, through formulating the problem, drawing out the diagram and sort of questioning a few things, reflecting on it. And kind of scratching our heads together and thinking, okay, how does this stack up? Where, Where do you think we might have some wriggle room to kind of test some of this out? We're really just looking to kind of loosen up the fixity of people's thoughts and beliefs to get them to a stage where they can then actually take some steps towards testing it out. And so I guess one of the analogies I'd use is the first few sessions of therapy are a bit like, imagine you're at a swimming pool and you're looking at diving boards that kind of high, people are jumping off into the swimming pool and you're thinking, oh gosh, is that okay to do? Is that safe enough to do? I'm not so sure. It looks pretty scary to me and I'm not sure if it will be okay to do it. And you think about it, maybe you have a conversation about it and then you think, right, on balance, I think that's probably okay to do. And so then you get up to the, the diving board and you get to the end and you've done all that thinking on the side of the pool, but when you're at the edge of the diving board, your body is still going to be screaming, this is a terrible idea, don't do it. And I suppose we're trying to help people to get to the stage where they're feeling some of that fear, some of that anxiety, but they're able to kind of rely on the thinking they've done beforehand and think, okay, I've thought this through. I think on balance, this is safe enough to do. Let's find out what happens and to sort of take that leap of faith and and make the jump and see what happens. And I guess hopefully we find that It was a kind of thrilling jump to make and it it was a bit scary, but actually their fears didn't come true and it was safe enough and an okay thing to do. And uh, it doesn't mean that the next time they go back up to the diving board, they don't feel anxious again, making that jump again. But hopefully they're learning something through the experience of facing their fear and sort of maybe challenging it in that way.
0: And I guess quite a lot of it feeds into this concept of neuroplasticity. And the more that you practice it, the more that your neural pathways actually do start to change and the energy is rechanneled and redirected. And then it does slowly get easier.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's some really good research and evidence out there for that neuroplasticity and that, that we can really sort of help quieten down parts of the brain like the amygdala which you know is responsible for a lot of our kind of emotional processing and our processing of fear and and our threat system and so yes I think that uh, it's really hopeful that we can actually work with people to make some real changes to how they're thinking and feeling and and functioning in their day-to-day lives and you know CBT is is a kind of goal-oriented therapy where we really want to help people to work towards achieving what they want to achieve and to become their own their own therapist so they don't need us anymore at the end of at the end of treatment they've got a brilliant set of tools and skill set to know how to carry on experimenting with things and and doing things so that they can pursue and achieve their goals
0: Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Can you ever put a timeline on treatment? Do you typically treat someone for a certain period or does it vary depending on the patient?
1: I think it, it really depends and, and varies. And CBT is typically a kind of time limited treatment, which I think can be helpful in encouraging a, a kind of focus and and planning and thinking about what you're going to try to do when. But yes, it's, it's going to be very dependent on an individual circumstances and the complexities of their problems, really. So for somebody who may only very recently have experienced their first panic attack and and have had a couple of panic attacks since and this is starting to become a problem for them and they don't sort of really understand what's going on when they have these experiences you might catch them early on in 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 treatment and be able to do some brilliant work and and have that all resolved for them within a few number of sessions not loads and loads of sessions whereas somebody who may have been struggling with something for far longer or maybe uh, has sort of a number of different comorbid or overlapping issues then it might take that bit longer and um, other things just going back to what you're saying about social anxiety disorder earlier on the research out there shows us that people with that particular disorder take a very long time to even seek treatment we're talking like on average people can take sort of 10 years plus to actually even seek out treatment so of course then you've got somebody with a more long-standing problem that again typically emerges in say like early adolescence and so It can really vary depending on the problem, the person, their circumstances. But yeah, I think it's helpful to think of a number of sessions that you're going to work towards and then review. And then of course you can extend and and that sort of thing, rather than it just being something that sort of is just open-ended. If it is open-ended in that way, then I I guess you'd you'd still be wanting to have an agreement that you've got like regular checkpoints to see how we're doing, what have we learned so far, what do we still need to work on? What do we still need to be sort of experimenting with, testing? How would we know when we've kind of done here and we've achieved what what you are hoping to achieve? So it's a dialogue really and is very sort of collaborative and client led. But yeah, you know, you're working together as a team.
0: And it is finite. It's not a sort of a form of therapy like psychoanalysis, which can just go on for years. It's definitely got a cap on it.
1: Well, I'm not saying it can't go on for years. I suppose for some people it might do but my personal experience has been working within the NHS where we have usually kind of set numbers of sessions that have some flexibility. And and that helps, I think, probably therapists and clients sort of focus on what they're going to try to achieve within that time. And like I say, we we are wanting to help people to become their own therapists. So if, for example, by the end of 12 sessions, we'd really sort of hope that by the end of that, they've got a at least a foundational, if not a sort of good enough toolkit of things to be going on to continue the work. So CBT, a course of CBT in some ways, really is only the start of, of that person's journey in terms of continuing to do the work themselves. That's the real sort of success is taking it forward and continuing to practice it.
0: Onto medication. Do you find that most of your patients are on medication? And is it helpful to be on something like an SSRI in conjunction with CBT?
1: Well, again, it, it varies so much. I mean, I've worked in different services with different populations of people with first treatment episodes through to people that have had a lot of treatment and have quite sort of long standing difficulties and it would really vary. So again, the nice guidelines would suggest that people are first offered, you know, talking therapy like CBT often for, for their difficulties. Um, rather than a medication and for many people i'd very much hope that that would be sufficient and they wouldn't need to then sort of also take medication but for some people medication can be really helpful for some people medication can be sort of crucial to helping them then do the work that's needed in in their cbt sessions so there's definitely no kind of one size fits all for this and and there are sort of various factors that might need to be considered as to whether somebody decides to take medication. And yeah, again, it's always a a conversation that somebody would want to have an informed conversation with their GP or potentially a psychiatrist and make sure that the therapist is aware of that conversation and and have people kind of working together so that everybody is on the same page and collaborating.
0: I would like to know your opinion on why CBT can work for some people and it doesn't work for others. Do you think it's, due to the amount of work people put in, or do you think it's more effective for some conditions versus others? Or do you think it simply has to do with the brain and some people respond to it and other people don't?
1: I think probably, again, loads of different factors depending on on a person, on the therapist they're seeing. I suppose it's really important, I'd say first and foremost, if anybody wants to gain CBT, that they ensure that they are seeing a CBT therapist and that they are engaging in receiving CBT. So people should definitely check out that they're seeing somebody that's had the right training and is is credible. And yes, you're also right that some, I suppose, treatments have been more researched or are kind of longer established and seem to be more effective with different problems. So For example, you know, as I said before, like CBT for panic attacks, panic disorder is really effective and and lots of people benefit from that. You know, you're you're talking about sort of higher recovery rates with that as a particular problem. 60 to 70% of people you'd be hoping would be recovering, but something like working with eating disorders, that might be a, a kind of lower recovery rate of something more like 45%. So yeah, some of it's to do with the therapy itself or the person delivering it, and I think, as you were alluding to, that yeah, it's pretty demanding as well. It can be demanding on on you as a as a client. That there will be homework and things for you to be doing between sessions. So you you know you're going to get out of it what you kind of put into it. So you also want to sort of have the right conditions, climate in your life at the time to be able to focus. On the therapy and give it the right amount of time. And also, perhaps it's not for everybody in terms of what they're hoping to get out of therapy. So, some people might be wanting to go into a more exploratory, longer term therapy where they're learning more about just themselves and sort of insight based therapy, exploring their childhoods, more of a kind of longer term psychodynamic approach, which I suppose is just not really what CBT is geared up to help people with. It's just a sort of different kind of approach. So those would be some of my thoughts on it. But again, I don't think there's any sort of clear answer.
0: I want to ask you, do you think it's more effective when people come to you having not had much therapy prior to seeing you? Or is it helpful if they have done a delve into the psychodynamic work, or they've done some other form of therapy that maybe has helped a bit, but not others? And I'd also love to know your opinion on the belief that I hold, um, which you may disagree with, which is it's worthwhile sampling different types of therapy to see which one can resonate and, you know, chisel away at different bits and and add to your toolbox.
1: Yeah, sometimes it can be really rewarding to work with people who haven't had any therapy before and you get the sort of privilege and pleasure of eureka moments when you're kind of mapping out the problem with somebody or helping them to sort of reflect on their thoughts or do things differently, or you you do a a really impactful behavioral experiment with somebody and discuss some sort of psychoeducation with them that they've not thought about before. And, and so, yeah, it can be really rewarding um, to work with people when they've not had therapy before and help them to sort of have a, a hopefully a good first experience. And I suppose also it can be really rewarding for different sort of ways to work with people who maybe have had a lot of treatment before where i suppose it's important to do a kind of thorough assessment of what is it they have covered before um what have they learnt what's been helpful where things maybe just fallen a, li- a little short what did they like what didn't they like and where perhaps you could add a little bit more value here or there or what could we do differently this time and the second question.
0: The second part was about whether you think it's important to keep trying new and different methods of therapy, because does each one peel off another layer of the onion, as it were?
1: I mean, I suppose that's possible. I I mean, I'd also say that it's down to just the person you're working with, as in the therapist you're working with. So you might have three, four, five courses of CBT with different people, and each one of those might bring something very different to you because of the person you're working with and their experience or just because of the personality you know there's all the sort of non-specific relational factors that that we should never overlook within any psychotherapy or talking therapy and so yeah I guess CBT is often thought of as being a, a particularly sort of manualized or technologized sort of therapy where you've got manuals and you've got protocols and that's all true that there are manuals and there are protocols but also, that the relationship is absolutely fundamental, and you can give the same protocol to ten different CBT therapists, and you probably get ten differently nuanced versions of that treatment. And some of them might gel with you more than than others. That the people that you're working with, given that you know, like I said, it's an experiential and experimental approach, it's nice to be working with a therapist that you that you gel with, and you you feel like you you have a good alliance with, and you you feel sufficiently trusting of and understood by. And, and all of those core conditions of a therapeutic relationship are all still like fundamentally important in CBT. I think sometimes CBT gets a little bit of a an undue bad rep that the relationship in CBT is kind of like overlooked or doesn't matter, which I would absolutely disagree with. And there are loads of books and research and stuff about the relationship in CBT, which show it to be really important.
0: Sure. And so if someone looking for a CBT therapist, do they just go onto the um the website with the accredited body?
1: Yeah. And if they're seeing somebody within the NHS, then um one would expect that they'd probably be B a B C P accredited if they're sort of put forward as a CBT therapist and they should just sort of yeah, feel entitled to ask about their their training and their accreditation and same if people are looking for private practitioners then again it should be something that people will have on their website and be putting forward and saying you know I am a BABCP accredited CBT therapist it's something to be sort of proud of you've done that training and you're accredited so it should be something that people are are saying yes this is what I am and if they're not then I would certainly be asking about it.
0: Well I think we've given um, CBT quite a sort of a grilling and um you've been absolutely fantastic and have certainly illuminated us all about what cbt involves and how it works and who it might be suitable for thank you so much for giving us your time today very welcome thank you for listening to this episode of healing 101 just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.